Okay. Welcome to our podcast, Forward to Extraordinary. I'm your host, Gary Balanoff. And as a reminder, this podcast is an attempt to go beyond the, wow, I hope we get back to normal soon mentality and start thinking about what we can do to make life far better. Dare we say extraordinary? Today, our guest is Frank Wells, CEO of the Central Florida Housing Trust, Housed, and he's also president of Bright Community Trust. And his goal is to bring what has been called affordable housing or workforce housing to the Central Florida region. It is an area that has drawn nationwide attention as everyone is facing the challenge of how to afford a home of their own, or even the monthly rent payments in the least affordable of the largest 50 metro areas in the nation. So let's explore how you're working on solutions to a very challenging problem and welcome, Frank. Gary, thanks. It's great to be with you today. Uh, I would tell you that the way that, that we frame this problem and the opportunity, right, is that we want for everybody everywhere in the state of Florida to live in a home that they love, that's in a good neighborhood, that feels like a place that they want to call home, that's close to a good job, that's close to a good school for their kids, that has access to a grocery store, a doctor's office, a park, all the kind of amenities that we think makes for a great place to live. And it's at a price that fits in their budget. And, and that's the big challenge for all of us these days is finding that home that, that fits in the budget, whether that's a rental, whether that's a, a home to raise your family in, whether that's a home to downsize into as we get older in life and, and look for a place to downsize after the kids are out of the house. All those are challenges of housing affordability, if you will. Well, how do you face that challenge? What, what are some possible solutions that you've used over the past few years that do tend to bring what you're looking to, to do to the people of Central Florida or throughout the state? I think it's important that we keep in mind what the dynamics are here, right? You, you mentioned this a little bit that uh, housing in Central Florida particularly is a really challenging shortage. It's the worst mismatch of the top 50 markets between the supply of housing and the cost, which is pretty close to the national average and our wage base, which is relatively low. We're not a place that has lots of corporate headquarters. We're not a place that has big tech companies with you know $100,000 jobs. We're a place that is tourism central. Everybody loves to come visit us. It's also a place that 1,500 new people a week want to call home. We have people moving here from all over the country. Almost all of them are coming here from higher income areas, right? So they're bringing those bigger corporate paychecks from New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, the West Coast. And they think a four or $500,000 house is a bargain. It was in the markets that they came from. The problem is, of course, that for everybody working an average job in Central Florida, that is way, way out of reach. And, and so our challenge here is that on a micro level, the market's doing a fantastic job. If I have 10 acres and I can build houses and sell them for 400,000 bucks a pop, the market is doing a fantastic job of providing a profitable opportunity for me. At the macro level, though, we're doing a lousy job of creating the supply of homes for the people who are currently here and need a good place to live that fits in the family budget. And so that's where our challenge is to work on both affordable rental opportunities and affordable home ownership opportunities. So we see a few potential solutions there. One thing that we can do is look for where are there places where there's some land that's less desirable to a for-profit developer 
it's a parcel that's a little bit too small, so it's not going to be tremendously uh, profitable. It may be a, a project that has hair on it. Some people uh, like to say it, it's a little bit more challenging, and so it's not worth the amount of time that's invested. Uh, as a nonprofit housing trust, we have a, a multi-decade kind of lens on this problem, and so we'll look at something that may take a while to get through the process, but the outcome will be worth it. And we'll think, okay, that's something that we'll tackle that the quote market wouldn't take on. Uh, we're looking for ways to leverage dollars that the cities and counties by and large get from state and federal sources. And how do we deploy those? We're starting to see some success with that. For instance, uh, Orange County just recently announced out of their uh, Mayor Demings Housing for All task force, one of the recommendations was the creation of a housing trust fund that it just made its first four commitments to invest in four multifamily housing projects that'll serve people with lower incomes. That's fantastic to see new initiatives like that. We need to scale them up pretty quickly, though. The other thing that we're starting to see more of and kind of one of the areas in which we've specialized is the land trust model that says, let us hold the land in perpetuity and all you have to pay for is the house that sits on it. That makes your cost a whole lot more affordable, but you're agreeing that because you get to buy it at such a bargain price, when you sell it, you'll sell it to somebody else uh, at, at a similarly affordable price. So you'll earn a little bit of the appreciation on it, but we're gonna share that and pass it along. It's kind of a uh, share the wealth or pay it forward kind of, uh, model and, and we love the opportunities that that creates as well. And part of the, the issue I know it tends to be the not in my backyard approach because uh, I, I've been dealing with, with uh, developers and, and homeowners for 37 years now. And, and one of the things that they say is, well, I've got my nice home in the suburbs and please don't build anything that's uh, for those lower class people in my backyard. And that's unfortunate. Not everybody feels that way, but it is a challenge for cities and counties, which sometimes have land that is possible to, to, to talk about projects like you're talking about. But, you know, the, the uproar sometimes from local citizens that go, well, not, not, not near my house. You can do it way out in the country somewhere where it's not near me. But uh, how, how, do you, how do you try to overcome that that feeling that well I got mine now so why should anybody else have theirs? I, I think there are a few things at work here. One thing that we try to talk about a lot is everybody wants a good place to call home at a price that fits in their budget, right? Home fits the budget. I almost never say the term affordable housing because that has some negative connotations for a lot of folks uh, in the in the general dialogue. And, and so we want to paint a picture of what we're really trying to create. I think too, it, it helps to remind people that, uh, you know, do you have students in college? Do you want them to stay in town so that they get their first job here when they graduate from UCF or one of the other great universities around here, uh, get their first job, get married, have some kids so you can live close to your grandkids. Well, a lot of, young students are not putting down roots here because the job opportunities relative to the costs are better in Atlanta and Austin and the Northeast and the West Coast, Colorado. And so we're losing people because there are not affordable housing 
for students and in entering their careers, right? That's an affordable housing challenge. Same thing applies. Uh, I was talking to a friend recently. She's the last of five in her family out the door well into her career. And her parents are now having the conversation around. We raised our family in this great 3,000 square foot suburban home, and it's now way too much home for us. We're ready to downsize. Holy cow, there's nothing around where we can go from 3,000 square feet to half that. And we'll spend every dime that we make on selling that big house to buy something that small. That doesn't seem like a very good investment. But if we want to stay in our neighborhood, that's what's going to cost. Well, that too is an affordable housing challenge. We've got to be talking about this in a way that engages people with, with oh, oh, that's something that I want in my neighborhood. I want an opportunity when I'm ready to downsize. I want an opportunity to stay in my neighborhood, close to my church, close to my friends, close to my doctor, my grocery store, my favorite restaurant. Uh, but we've got to allow ourselves to build for that. Uh, and that's an affordable housing challenge. I think too, it, it pays to remind people, you know, nobody comes by your house and says, oh, Gary, you know, uh, uh, we don't really like Dodges in this neighborhood. This is a, a Toyota neighborhood. But people feel free to say, oh, no, we don't like that kind of housing in this neighborhood. Uh, it, it, we, we need a little bit more, I think, leadership, a little bit more thicker skin sometimes from uh, our cities and counties to say, you know, the, the people who show up to say no are the people who are really deeply passionate about this and have the time or make the time to come say no. Nobody who cares about housing affordability is going to show up to say yes at a county commission meeting, a city council meeting. It's way harder to turn out people who are enthusiastic about things generally on principle, but it's not in their neighborhood. Uh, and, and so we're not listening to the silent thousands who are saying, we've got to do something about this housing crisis here. We're listening to a handful of people who show up to be loud in the room during the meeting. Uh, and we're unfortunately letting a few loud voices in the room overrule what we're hearing from people all around the region, all around the state, really all around the country to say, we've got to do something about this housing crisis. And we know what that answer is in a lot of cases. Well, and one of the things that occurs to me is uh, looking for places where uh, properties could be built on successfully uh, and that would be close enough to job centers and so on would be hate to say it, but like malls and shopping centers that have now almost gone defunct because there's not as much need for retail space now in America, anywhere, but especially with all the, the online shopping that people are doing. And I, I'm all for supporting local business, but when there's vacancy, 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 store, vacancy, would it be possible to take an older mall that is not making any money as it is and just say, let's repurpose this into something that is, uh, you know, a, a multifamily dwelling with little villas, because part of the problem seems to be, and I, I deal with a lot of seniors who are doing the same thing that you're talking about, going from that 3,000 square foot, in many cases, two-story home, which was fine in your 30s, 40s, 50s, but now that you're 85 years old, you really don't want to be running up and down the stairs all the time. There are fall trip hazards and everything else. So if you could just have a one-story Maybe with a one-car garage, 
1,200 square feet to 1,500 square feet with a little patio in the back, but it could be attached. It's no big deal, but not two-story. There's nothing that has been built like that for quite some time and anywhere that I've been able to find. And the ones that have been built even 30, 40 years ago, in many cases, are needing new roofs. They're needing new plumbing systems and electrical and so on. And I'm wondering what the possibility is of just taking one of these um, fairly large parcel shopping centers and, and just saying, okay, we'll, we'll you know, sell it to the county or the city or whatever, and then the city will repurpose that as part of a trust that allows this kind of, of uh, uh, housing to be built for something that is not outrageous, where people won't have to pay for a 1,200 square foot space for $500,000. Is that possible? You're, you're absolutely right that uh, we're not building anywhere near enough of that. The Ironically, the federal government defines those kinds of things as starter homes, meaning it's under 1,400 square feet. Uh, and we saw some fascinating data recently. I hadn't, you know, we, you and I kind of know this intuitively from being in the business, but we just saw the data that in the post-World War II era, something like 42% of homes that were built in a year were starter homes, right? We, we built small housing stock. And so that served people both early when you're in your first job or you're just married, but you haven't had kids yet. And also when you want to downsize, you know, at, at both ends of the housing spectrum, if you will. In uh, 2018, I think is the most recent numbers, we built 8% of the homes under 1400 square feet. So it's no wonder if, you know, in the last 20 years, 10% of the housing supply is serving what is a giant chunk of the market. People in their first 10 or so years of home buying and people in their last 20 or so years of home buying are really not getting served by this market. To your, to your point about repurposing malls and, and shopping centers and other big expanses like that, the, the big challenge there is not not the physics, it's not the finance, it's the zoning. We get so caught up sometimes in, well, that's a commercial space. And what you're talking about is a residential use. We're, we're not adapting our thinking about what do we need here anywhere fast enough. And, and particularly, um, you know, we would have said this five years ago, the internet and automation is already starting to drastically change the job market. You know, when was the last time you went to a bookstore compared to ordering a book on Amazon. Uh, same thing applies to an awful lot of shopping. And that's just been magnified greatly through the pandemic. Uh, we've got to adapt our thinking faster and be more flexible. In a lot of cases, uh, what's preventing us from solving these housing problems uh, is not the physical or the financial realities of it. It's our policy decision, and we need to call it that. We're making an intentional decision to not allow ourselves to build what would actually solve the problem. And unfortunately, politics is involved in every single step of American life now. And you're right. I mean, the, the zoning laws, in some cases, were put in in the 50s. Right after World War II, there were zoning law changes, and it has been updated a little bit over time. But, you know, oh, that's a commercial area. You're right. It's, it's, not, it's not zoned for that. And the, the attorneys and architects and planners and everything else, the millions of dollars that have to get spent on rezoning projects has almost become part of the financial puzzle that pieces cannot fit together unless 
you have the leadership of a city or county that's willing to say, throw all that out the window. We need this and we need it now. And as, as it is, it, it might take three years to be able to make it a reality. I know here in Oviedo, um, they're trying to repurpose a uh, about a half of the Oviedo Mall into uh, senior housing, a hotel, some retail space and everything else. And it's just rethinking the way we go about shopping, uh, living, housing and everything else. And it, it but it's needed because in, in many communities that are getting to be five, six, $700,000 houses, they thought about it up front and said, okay, for example, the Naval, Naval Training Center, they turned that into a beautiful neighborhood, which has gone up dramatically right. in price. They put in new schools. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very desirable area. And instead of having a bunch of old Navy barracks, you know, and, and it was done 15 years ago, but it took about three or four years to get to the point where it could be a reality and it came out of the ground and you could actually purchase a house there. But but what we're talking about on this podcast is basically a little bit lower price than that. You you, you know, right, right. You can afford Holman Park is beautiful, but could we do it for two fifty or three hundred thousand, even if it's much smaller? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, a lot of these again are intentional decisions when when our land use zoning codes require minimum house sizes. Uh, we just saw an RFP elsewhere in the state recently that said the, the minimum house you're allowed to build for this affordable housing, quote, affordable housing, their term, is 1,500 square feet. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I can make a home that costs a lot less if you let me build it in 1,200 square feet. Somebody has to pay for those extra 300 square feet. And, and could we focus on design issues. Same thing applies if every lot has to be at least 5,500 square feet, has to be at least 7,000 square feet. You know, they need to be 60 feet wide. Well, you know, we used to build great houses on 40-foot lots uh, and live a little bit closer to our neighbors, but that also means down the road we have more neighbors in less square footage, uh, less acreage to cover the costs of infrastructure and so forth. You know, Baldwin Park's a great example of building very densely. All those row homes, the apartments over the uh, ground floor retail, um, you know, over the years, you've got a bigger tax base paying for less infrastructure cost. Our big sprawly um, suburban homes where everybody needs 3,000 square feet on a quarter acre lot, somebody's got to pay for that sewer infrastructure, that road infrastructure, everything else down the road. And as you noted, you know, when we get 25, 30, 40 years down the road, uh, it's really hard to keep up with the maintenance costs of neighborhoods like that because there's a relatively low tax base. Even though the individual home prices may be higher, there are a lot fewer of them for a lot more square footage or a lot more miles of roads and traffic lights and sewer and wastewater and all that. Well, and one of the things that we also have to deal with anytime you talk about adding new residents to the area, which we obviously are, is, like you said, water, sewer, uh, electricity. You've got to have utilities that go to all of these places. And it tends to be, from what I understand, easier for a developer to come in and be able to do that in a fairly smaller lot size and, and even multifamily kind of area than it is to be able to provide that for 
you know, a hundred acres of, of land where you've got to run more uh, pipes and, and uh, uh, you know, all of the different infrastructure to be able to get there. So do, do you think that the, you know, if, if the uh, if, if Congress ever gets to the point of, of passing an infrastructure bill, and of course that pressure's on basically, but it's it's been like this for quite some time. I mean, during uh, the last two administrations before this, there was talk about putting in infrastructure that would allow what you're talking about, what we're all talking about, and trying to find ways of, of fitting together communities uh, more affordably and giving that kind of level of service through a federal bill that makes it easier because cities have a hard time buying up property, you know, turning it into, uh, you know, a trust or what you're talking about. But you know, the federal government seems to have billions of dollars to spend and it makes the affordability factor a little bit easier, I would think, if you can get help with that in conjunction with rezoning and, and making the, the um, stumbling blocks removing those to, to being able to put together a project. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, if you think about what happens when we go from, let's just use one example, four $400,000 homes per acre to 12 $250,000 townhomes to an acre, right? We've almost doubled the tax base in the same square footage, even though we've provided three times as many homes and at a lower price point, right? So this is good both from a tax base kind of uh, side of the equation and from the housing side of the equation. So we've, we've really got to look at uh, how all this math works and particularly how it works over time uh, and really figure in what the maintenance costs of in continuing to build more sprawly suburbia uh, and I think we should keep in mind too that it's harder and harder as we all get older. You know, the the more space that we live on, the more we sprawl, the fewer, uh, the longer we have to drive to get to all the resources we need. Resources in this case, you know, your your doctor's office, your grocery store, all those kinds of things. So, uh, you know, that just adds to the complications of life as we get later and later in our lives. Understandable. Well, uh, thanks for being here today, Frank Wells, Area Leader in Solutions for Workforce Affordable Housing. And if people hear this and want to help you make a difference, uh, you know, we've got city commissioners that listen to this kind of stuff too. <laughs> you know, if they, if, if, uh, if they want to get in touch with you, how do we go about doing that? I would encourage you to look at our websites, thebrightway.org. Right Community Trust that works in several parts of Florida and everybody housed, H-O-U-S-D, here in Central Florida. We're here to be a resource to be involved in any conversation about addressing housing needs at any point on the income spectrum. If you're a city commissioner, if you're a community leader, uh, you're a staff person, you're just an interested citizen and you want to bounce ideas around and be part of the solution, we're here to be in that conversation with you. So let us know how we can help. Sounds great. Well, thanks again, Frank. And thanks to all of you podcast enthusiasts for being with us today. And stay tuned for more Forward to Extraordinary in the weeks and months to come as we go back to normal and beyond and find new paths to extraordinary. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you download and make it a great week. Thanks. <laughs>